I'd like you to turn to Luke's Gospel and to chapter 1. And we're going to read a story that in so many ways is very, very familiar to us. We've heard the story told in this video, and uh, we're going to hear the story read again. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we give you thanks for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you for your word and for the way that you've spoken to your people through your word throughout the generations. Lord, as we, as we study this portion today, we ask that you would illumine us. You would open our hearts and minds to hear what you are saying and give us a sense of understanding. Thank you, Lord, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how, how will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. Luke is absolutely the master storyteller. He brings us right into the very center of this most unusual story, and, and it completely blows our mind. Now, in, in some senses, he's, he's prepared us for this story. You have to read what's gone before. You have to read the story of this same angel appearing to Zechariah to get a sense of, of, of what's going on. The story of the angel coming and foretelling the birth of John the Baptist— Zechariah is, is one of the priests, and he's serving in the temple. Read the story later, and you'll, you'll get a sense of what's going on. Although it's, it's not common, one would kind of expect God to talk to someone like Zechariah, a priest, someone set apart for God, in the temple. However surprised this, this guy Zechariah seems to be, but there are also some clues, if you look back in the Zechariah story, to suggest that as, 
as wonderful as it is that there will be a son born to this elderly man and woman, this barren woman, Elizabeth, that there is something much more significant that's about to take place. And so, six months later, in an out-of-the-way village in, in a region called Galilee, in the northern hill country, the angel Gabriel appears to this young girl called Mary. Now, as much as, or, or even as little as one might expect God to, uh, to appear to a priest, what happens in Mary's story is certainly unexpected, to say the very, very least. Up till now, we've not, we've not heard of this girl called Mary. She just seems to, to appear. She just comes out of the blue, out of nowhere at all. And as we, as we look at these few verses, though, we can begin to, to paint a picture of who this young girl is and what's about to happen to her and what's about to happen through her, the significance of the event and how she responds to this event. So let's start thinking about this, this girl, Mary. What do we know about her? What sort of a person was she? Why does it seem like she was, she was so special that she was called, she was chosen for this particular task? Well, the first thing that we're told about Mary it's kind of like a slap in the face in a lot of ways. They don't, Luke doesn't beat about the bush. The first thing that we're told about her is that she's a virgin. Now, the word that's used in Greek is, is parthenos, which literally means, believe it or not, virgin. I mean, <laughs> figure. It's, it's um, in, in, in Greek mythology, it's one of the names that's, that's ascribed to the goddess Athena, um, who was in mythology, a, a virgin. Artemis was, uh, was described also as the virgin goddess, Parthenos. So, when Luke uses this particular word, it would certainly begin at least to lead his readers down the path towards the conclusion that Mary may very well, in fact, have been a virgin. This same word's been used in the Greek version of the, of the Old Testament to translate a word, Alma. And, and that word can simply mean a young girl or a girl of marriageable age. Now, in his commentary on Luke, uh, Joel Green says that a girl could be married by the time she was 12 or 13. And before that, there was a 12-month betrothal period that could begin even by the time the girl was 10 years old. Shocking to us in so many ways. And the very next thing that we learn about Mary is not just that she was a virgin, but that she's actually in this betrothal period to a man named Joseph. So the fact that she was betrothed also points to the fact that she was a virgin. A marriage back then was seen more as a contract between a father and, uh, and, and the prospective husband. Daughters were married at a very young age because then the fathers could, could more easily guarantee that the girl would be a virgin before she entered into puberty. The marriage deal was, was sealed by a written contract. The bride price was, was given to the groom, and then it was, it was effectively sealed in the sexual act. And it was in this act that the two became one flesh, that actually was the definition of marriage when that marriage was clearly defined. So here we have this 
possibly prepubescent 11 or 12-year-old girl who in good faith is betrothed to a man who has probably been guaranteed that the bride will be pure and a virgin. There's one other fact that stands out a little bit later on to back all of this up. To back all of this up. In verse 34, in most translations, we have Mary saying, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now again, that could simply mean that she's just a young girl. But the Greek is extremely clear here. Mary literally says, how can this be since I have not known a man? And in the Bible, the word know is often used as a euphemism for sexual relations. So, Luke did not mean for us to have any doubt whatsoever about Mary's virginity. She was a young girl around 11 or 12 who was in a betrothal covenant who had never had sex. All three of these facts point clearly to the truth that Mary was a virgin in case any of you had any doubts about that at all. And as we look through the next few verses, though, we can begin to discern just a little bit more about the sort of girl that Mary was. From chapters 1 and 2, we learn the following aspects of Mary's character. First of all, in verse 30, we see that she is, she's favored of God. It's often translated, she was full of grace. Mary, full of grace. Very familiar words. Now, this is not to be thought of in the sense that she's possessed of any grace of her own. But the sense is much more that she has been graced by God. God has extended His grace to her. He has set her apart. He has set, He has called her to a very specific task. She's not filled with her own grace, nor does she dispense grace. But she's simply a young girl that God has graced. She was favored of God. Then in verse 29, and, and, and also in chapter 2, uh, if you read on later in verses 19 and 51, you find that she was, she was thoughtful. She was a young girl who was of a, of a thoughtful disposition. You get the sense that she takes things very, very seriously. She takes things very much to heart. She doesn't take anything for granted. She discerns things, and, and we learn later that she ponders things in her heart, looking to determine what the, what the meaning and what the outcome of things might be. She's thoughtful. In verse 38, we, we find that she's, she's obedient. When it's been explained to her what is about to happen, as she ponders the significance of what she's been told, her response is, is quite unexpected again in so many ways and in sharp contrast to, to, to Zechariah's response. Again, go back to the beginning of chapter 1 and read that story. She says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me, just as you have said. God's call comes to her, and she trusts, and she responds in faith. She's obedient. Verse 45, we, we see that she's believing. We see Elizabeth singing of, of Mary's faith. God's call came upon her. She believed through the gift of faith, and then she obeyed. We see here very, very clearly obedience and faith. Faith and action 
going hand in hand. I believe and I act in response to that belief. And we see very, very clearly Mary's response here. And then in verse 46, we find that she is worshipful. She worshipped God. In this wonderful hymn that, that we in church tradition call, call the Magnificat. You see, she took no credit for any of this upon herself. She knew it was all of God. And she proclaimed it to be so in her worship. Now, it would be extremely easy for, for someone to see these characteristics and say, it's no wonder that God called her. She's, she's such a wonderful example of humanity. There's perfection in her. Of course God was going to call this, this young woman. In the tradition of some churches, they've taken this understanding to, to a, a much higher level and taught that not only was she a wonderful example of, of humanity, but that Mary herself was, was without sin. Even in her conception, there is nothing, nothing, nothing in the Bible to suggest any of that. In fact, we learn from later in the Gospels that, that Mary thought Jesus was a little bit crazy. She lost sight at one point of who Jesus was and what Jesus was all about. It's not by mistake that the first thing in the account of Mary is that we learn that God's grace is upon her. God's grace comes first. Then her faith. Then her obedience. Then her worship. But where does it start? It all starts with God. She was just a young girl that God chose. None of these qualities is offered as a reason why God chose her. God simply chose her. So that's a little bit about Mary. What about, what about what's going to happen to her? Well, the first thing that happens to her is that this angel who calls himself Gabriel appears to her. Now, there are only two angels actually mentioned by name in the Bible. The first one is the, is the archangel Michael, whose name means, who is like the Lord? It's a question. I should have had a higher inflection at the end there. Who is like the Lord? <laughs> no one, in other words. And then, so you've got Michael, and then you've got this, this other angel, Gabriel, whose name means God's mighty man. And the only other places that we have, um, we have mention of Gabriel is in the book of Daniel. He's mentioned there twice. And Gabriel's the one who, who, who explains God's visions to Daniel. And earlier in, in Luke chapter 1, when, when it's Gabriel who appears to Zechariah, and in Zechariah's story, Gabriel, Gabriel declares himself to be the one who stands before the face of God. He's God's mighty man, and he stands before the face of God. So, what we can infer from this is that Gabriel, Gabriel is not speaking on his own behalf, okay? 
He's speaking the very word of God. He is God's representative. He is God's ambassador. So in so many ways, this is actually to be seen as, as an appearance of God himself. The, the other thing that makes this point so very clear is that when Gabriel's introduced in the, in the story of Zechariah, he's introduced as an angel of the Lord. Now, what this does is it conjures up for Luke's readers the, the Old Testament stories about the angel of the Lord. This was a character who appeared to many throughout the pages of the Old Testament, and he was clearly viewed as a direct appearance by God himself. In fact, Christian thought, theology looks back at some of these stories in the Old Testament and talks of them in terms of pre-incarnation appearances of the second person of the Trinity. So Luke doesn't want Mary or us to miss the, the, the import of this message about to be delivered. It's to be seen, although it's not God himself that's come, but it's, it's, it's one of God's champion angels, an angel of the Lord. It's to be seen as a message directly from God. Now, the other thing about this encounter with the angel that we all tend to miss is the whole striking nature of this, of this image. If you read the Bible and, and focus on angel encounters, you very often, in fact, most always find the angels saying to the hearers of their message these, these four words, do not be afraid. Why do you think angels needed to say that? Because they were scary. Angels were frightening to behold. Think about it. Okay, in, in, in art and in popular culture, angels for the, for the most part are portrayed as extremely beautiful or, um, you, if, if not a little bit prudish women, okay? No, yeah, I mean, think about it. Or, or perhaps as some kind of, um, can I use the word um, uh, woos? A, a kind of um, wayfish type of a man who, who appears very, very gently. Why would anyone be afraid of, of a beautiful yet prudish woman? Roma Downey, who would ever be, remember, touched by an angel? Who would ever be afraid of Roma Downey? Or, or, or Michael Landon in, in, the 90, in the 90s, the series Highway to Heaven? Who would ever be afraid of, of, of uh, you know, Pa Ingle from Little House in the Prairie? Good grief. The image that we're supposed to, to have in mind is nothing like that. Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator. <laughs> Maximus from Gladiator. If you want to think of, of angels in terms of women, Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> Linda Hamilton. Uh, Tilda Swinton from the, from the Narnia movies. Those are the images that we need to have in mind when we think about angels. They're frightening. They're powerful. They're awe-inspiring. There's a scene in, uh, in Terminator 2. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie. It's a, yeah, it's a pretty violent movie, but it's, a, it's an excellent movie <laughs> nonetheless. There's a scene in Terminator 2 where one of the main characters, uh, Sarah Connor, she's played by Linda Hamilton. Um, she, um, in the first movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the Terminator that had come, and she was, he was trying to kill her, and she was saved by this guy that had come back from the future. And nobody believed her story. They thought that she was crazy talking about people coming from the future and robots trying to kill her and robots trying to take over the world. So they put her 
into um, a mental institution. And she was pumped full of drugs, and they tried to rehabilitate her, but she knew the truth. And she'd often tried to go along with them, but the truth for her would always come out. And eventually, she managed to, to orchestrate events so that she was able to escape from this mental institution. And she gets, she gets out. She's running down the corridor. She's chased by all these doctors and orderlies waving hypodermic needles trying to get her and, and, and take her and put her back into her cell. And she's running and she's running and she's so far ahead of them. The doors are locked. People can't get to her. She gets to, to the elevator. She pushes the button. The doors open. Out steps Arnold Schwarzenegger, dressed in black leather with the glasses on, a shotgun over his shoulder. He steps out. Sarah Connor sees this figure, and she is filled with abject terror. She falls flat. She can't hold herself up. She turns. She tries to run. Her feet won't hold her up. She would much rather be back in the hands of her captors than face this, this frightening image. And yet, the Terminator looks down at her, and he says, come with me if you want to live. <laughs> Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This is not some casual, wispy encounter of two little kids in a nativity play. You're going to have a baby. Oh, yippee! That's not the image at all. This is, now listen, this is an event that is going to change the world. And the way the message is delivered is so striking and incongruous. You need to think Dakota Fanning and Arnold Schwarzenegger. We can't miss the striking nature of this image. So Luke has done this wonderful job of setting the scene for us. He's, he's got us poised on the edge of our seats, waiting to see what message this angel is about to give to Mary. How this message can top the one that Gabriel gave to, to Zechariah is anybody's guess. But you know that this, this message is extremely vital and it can't be missed. So what's the message that he gives to Mary? Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but this story has a very Old Testament feel to it. Each part of the story seems to recall some event or story from the, past, from the, from the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures. Angel messengers, divine messages, personal appearances— miraculous and unexpected happenings. It's supposed to do that. It reminds us that all this is part of the same unfolding story of God's plan of redemption for humanity. Many people think that the Old Testament God was 
was capricious and tyrannical. And that the New Testament God is a big teddy bear who just loves everybody. But the reality is this. The Old and the New Testaments hold together a consistent picture of God. One who is just and merciful. One who's transcendent and yet imminent. One who hates sin but loves with an everlasting love. One who punishes sin but provides redemption for his people. One God, one story, one plan. And each part of the message here ties back to something that's been said before. It says very clearly that what God has promised in the past, he's about to bring to fulfillment. Now, this is absolutely vital in understanding the import of this message because although it was a message to this young girl, it carried a weight for all the people of Israel. Israel, the, the house of Jacob, were, were the people of the covenant. They were Abraham's physical descendants. They had seen God fulfill his promises in their ancient stories time and time again, and yet this people of the promise had become a people of pessimism. Israel was a nation that had almost lost hope. Their rulers were corrupt. They had become a vassal of Rome. They had no power or a or authority. They were, they were really a nation in name only, with only a religious but no real political identity. They were a tiny nation looked down upon by the nations all around them. Their peoples, even by this time, were, were scattered far and wide throughout the world. They were a people without any real hope. Oh, they, they, they did have a kind of hope <clears throat> that God would, would send His Messiah that that, 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 that would someday deliver them. But that hope had been with them for so many centuries that it was, it was more of a fantasy than a, than a real hope. It was a wish rather than a prayer. At one time, they had prayed fervently for the Messiah to come. Maybe some were still praying, but it still seemed such a long way off. So many had lost any sense of real hope. So it's into this wider background that the message comes, and we need to know this in order to really understand what's being said. And when you break the message down, you see that there are four main parts to the message. First of all, Gabriel says, you will have a child, and you will call him Jesus. The first part of the message doesn't seem to be all that particular, at least at first, uh, all that significant, at least at first glance. You, you, you'll have a child. And you'll call him Jesus. Wow, that's big news. Thank you, angel. You came all the way down to tell me that. I'm about to get married. I figured at some point I'd be having a baby. Thanks so much. But it instantly becomes significant when, when, you, when you look at the announcement, not just in the context of the young girl, but look at it in the context of the story of God's redemptive plan. You will have a child, and you will call him Jesus. Now, to understand this, you have to know that the name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And you have to know that the name Joshua or Yeshua means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. And this name has, 
has so many associations with the people hearing the story. It takes them back to the days when the, the children of Israel were in captivity in Egypt and, and Moses led them out of Egypt into the wilderness. It brings to mind the, the promises of God that he would bring his people to a, to a land flowing with milk and honey. It brings to mind the character in the Old Testament, Joshua, who went into that same promised land and told the people all the wonders that he beheld there. Well, some of the other scouts could only speak of their fear. It brings to mind his trust in God and, and, and courage in leading God's chosen people out of their period of wandering in the wilderness into this very same land. Joshua, Jesus, the Lord saves. Second part of the message, the angel says, he will be the son of God. If Mary missed the significance of the angel's message in the name of her child, she cannot, fail, she cannot have failed to miss the message here. Now, funnily enough, this doesn't really initially point to the divinity of the child. What it points to is, is the covenant that God made with, with David, the king, that, that the king of the line of David would be God's son. Now, initially, this covenant was interpreted in terms of, of the physical line, the kings that would follow after David in succession. But over the course of, of time, it came to be seen more and more in terms of, of the coming of God's Messiah. And the fact that this is mentioned twice in verse 32 and also in verse 35, it makes this even more significant. This is a double promise that the angel gives. The Son of the Most High, the Son of God, the Messiah, promised of old. He will reign on David's throne forever, is the next thing that the angel says. And this is where the promise is stated in the clearest terms. This child, whose name means the Lord saves, who will be the Messiah, the Son of God, a king of David's line, will be the one in whom God's promise to David and his promises to the house of Jacob would be fulfilled. In other words, the people of Israel, the house of Jacob, those promises would be fulfilled. So it clearly points to the, to the eternal and to the everlasting fulfillment of the promises of God. The people had been waiting for centuries for these promises to be fulfilled, and they had given up hope. And here, through this young girl, they're about to be fulfilled in the most miraculous way. The fourth thing the angel says is, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The final section of the angel's message, it points to the, to, to the miraculous nature of what, a, what is about to happen. This is not going to be Joseph's son, this child. It's not even going to be a son of David in the generic sense. It's not a Messiah in the way that, that people have have expected one. This child is going to be conceived by the overshadowing of the, and, 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 and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, some might say that this is just a, a kind of mythological expression in the same way that the gods of, of ancient Greece had sexual encounters with mortal women and sired the, the heroes of the ancient world. The difference is that these tales are extremely graphic in their telling. They're focused on the desire of the gods to sexually possess these beautiful mortal women. There's no greater purpose served 
other than these gods fulfilling their, their own lusts. In this story, there's, there's no graphic sexuality. There's no lust. There's no violation. In fact, Scripture is very, very clear on the fact that Mary was a virgin at the time of conception, remained a virgin through the pregnancy until after the child was born. And Matthew says that Joseph did not know Mary, did not know Mary until after the child was born. This was a conception and a birth unlike any other in history or in mythology. With this reference to the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, we're also drawn back into the Old Testament. The readers may very well be reminded of the the cloud coming in the Old Testament and and overshadowing the tabernacle in Exodus when, when the very glory of God Himself came to reside there. You see the same image in 1 Kings chapter 8, an overshadowing because of the the presence of the glory of God. Listen to what what John says in chapter 1 of of his gospel. In verse 14, "And, "...and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." The, The overshadowing of the Holy Spirit points to the reality of the glory of God, God Himself revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. There's actually one more thing that the angel says to Mary, and this is where I really need to finish. He reminds Mary of her relative Elizabeth, who is very old. She's advanced in years, it says, and she's about to have a child, an impossible situation. This points right back to Mary, who is a virgin and who may not even yet have reached childbearing years. Again, an impossible situation. And pointing to Elizabeth, the angel also points way back to the story of Abraham and Sarah, where God again gave life to the womb of an old woman and gave hope to Abraham that God's promise would be fulfilled. And pointing to Elizabeth and Sarah, the angel's message is for God's people a people who seemed to be without hope, a people who saw God's promises as vain and empty. They thought these promises will never be fulfilled. It's an impossible situation. God's Word comes to them as it came to Mary, as it also comes to us. Nothing will be impossible with God. The only thing left is to ask how we respond. Well, Mary's response seems to be very straightforward. Verse 38 says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In the face of this impossible and incomprehensible situation, she placed herself fully into the loving hands of God, knowing that what was about to happen was entirely the work of a sovereign God. In one of his prayers in the book, The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis prays this, As thou wilt, what thou wilt, when thou wilt, 
May that be our prayer today. Amen.